This is our first of three messages on putting on the armour, but in our series in Ephesians, it is part 25 from Ephesians chapter 6, verses 13 to 14. So our kids will be leaving us for Kids Church with their leaders, so thank you. So as we continue our series in, in Ephesians, uh, I would like to remind you that last week we discussed the issue of principalities and powers. When difficulties arise, we, our first reaction is to try and blame someone else for our troubles, whoever that might be. But let's remember that we have three enemies. What are they? The world, the flesh and the devil. Paul says that our struggle is not against flesh and blood, rather we are struggling against the principalities and powers, the rulers of this present darkness, the wicked spirits which are in high places. So while judicial and economical, uh, economic and, and political structures are neutral, that means that they are neither good nor bad, these wicked spirits can seek to influence them in legislation, in permissiveness, in what they prohibit, in what they allow. For example, the state which in Romans chapter 13 we are called to, to pray and respect and honour our leaders because they are ministers of God. In the book of Revelation, the state becomes Babylon, an ally of the devil. Similarly, the law which was intended for our good in the Old Testament, our guardian until Christ came, also brings wrath because of our sins. Law of sin and death. You see, every good gift of God can be perverted by evil use. We know that. We know that's real in our own lives. We see it in, in our own experience, in families. God gives a child and then suddenly a devotion changes from devotion to God to devotion to the child that God has given, the perfect gift. God gives you a beautiful house and instead of thanking him, suddenly we, God, this is not yours anymore, this is mine. I will do whatever I want with my house, with my car with my career, with my talents and gifts. Everything that God gives can suddenly become a slave and slave us. And we know, of course, that perversion is reaching unprecedented levels in our day. It, it's, you know, sometimes you shake your head and say, how on earth do we get here? Kent Hughes one of the 
He's written a few books. Um, he's a very good Bible expositor. Kent Hughes puts it like this. He says, This world is approving of things that even dogs in the full sway of their animal instincts would never do. Think about it. Having said that, let's be sober and wise as we respond to to these warnings in Scripture. Um, The late C.S. Lewis once warned us, there are two equal opposite mistakes that people make about the devil. They either disbelieve his existence or they have an unhealthy interest in him. Devils themselves love both errors equally and hail either a materialist, the materialist is the one who denies it, or the magician who sees it everywhere, the devil's everywhere, with equal delight, end of quote. For this reason we need to be careful and we need to be measured with regards to Satan and his cohorts, his demons. And uh, it's interesting, some 30 years ago, uh, George Barner um, asked those who considered themselves born-again Christians this question. Would you say the devil or Satan is not a living being but is a symbol of evil? That was the question in the survey. Of the total number that responded to the survey, these are Christians, okay? Go to church. Of the total number who responded to the survey, 48% either agreed that Satan is only symbolic or weren't sure. I wonder what those figures would be like now. Half of the people don't even believe in Satan. But there is also the opposite extreme. And this happens when we live in fear of Satan and his demons and see him behind every bush, every tree. There is no need. There is no need to rebuke demons in cars, in homes. This is simply demonic or unbiblical superstition, really. What we are called to do is to make use of the protection that God provides for us in Christ, in his atonement for us. Not to live in fear. So first of all, stand firm. Verses 13 to the first part of verse 14. Let's read these verses again. Therefore put on the full armour of God so that when the day of evil comes you may be able to stand your ground and after you have done everything to stand. Stand firm then. Have you noticed? And actually if you pick it up from verse 11 to 14 the Apostle emphasises the need to, to stand no less than four times. You can't miss it, right? Stand, 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 stand. And it's a real struggle to stand firm in our, in our faith. For our enemy is, is constantly trying to knock us over. That's what he's trying to do. So, so let, let's just be sure here that this is a figure of speech. So 
To stand is not necessarily referring to a physical position. The Apostle Paul was, remember the Apostle Paul was once thrown into prison with Silas. In the book of Acts we read this and, and their feet were, were fastened in stocks. So they were sitting on the, on the ground with their stocks, you know, with their feet in the stocks. Can't do very much, can't, can't stand. They were knocked over physically, but they were singing hymns. Right? They were, they were full of joy. They were taking a stand, even though they were physically sitting down. Here is, here is something that I think we, we all need to, to really take hold of, that wobbly Christians... Wobbly Christians have no firm foothold in Christ and are very easy prey for the devil. Weak Christians will be blown and tossed in the wind when principalities and powers show up. It's like the in a herd of that you see out in the in the wilderness. See the herd and the stragglers, the sick and the little ones tend to lag behind. They need special protection. This is why we need stability in character in a crisis and and why the armour of God is essential. 1 Corinthians 16.13 Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Not once in the scriptures will you find anything positive about cowards. Not once. Not in character, not in faith. But it's always the call to be courageous, to stand, to take a stand. Just this week I had to stand firm in order to defend a dear Christian brother. You know what it feels like. Taking a stand does not care, you see, for reputation and self-preservation or how long it takes. And Jesus actually once said, it's in the Beatitudes, he actually said, he said, we are blessed when people insult us, persecute us and falsely say all kinds of evil things against us because of him. Because of the truth. We are blessed. It doesn't feel like blessed when they're putting all this stuff on, I don't know, saying, and even on social media. Because taking a stand calls out the compromise, the lies, the injustice, because it cares for truth. We cannot do this on our own. It's impossible. We desperately need help from each other. More importantly, we cannot do it without God. And the protection that you and I have against Satan's attack is ours now. That's his promise. I'm not saying it. The scriptures are saying it. And it's there to be used. 
what we're going to do is put it on. In this regard, the, the Puritan minister William Garnell uh, said this about 350 years ago. This is what he said. In heaven we shall appear not in armour, but in robes of glory. It's good, isn't it? But here they are to be worn night and day. We must walk, walk, work, sleep in them, or else we are not true soldiers of Christ. End of quote. There is nothing special you must do to obtain the armour. Like I said, what we need to do is make use of it. It's no good having it in your wardrobe, just as any other article of clothing. Or worse, behind a glass cabinet as a valuable collector's piece to be observed and admired and shown to your friends who come to visit. (laughs) There's my armour right there. I polish it every now and then. Don't touch it, please. We've got to wear it. And there are many aspects to this armour. And it's important to say this because we we tend to focus on on one aspect. There there are six of them, right? And we tend to focus on one and discard the others. We are good on one and not others, or weak in others. Some people, for example, their preferred piece of armour is strong in prayer, but they're very weak in Bible reading. The truth. But to our peril, we're going to put each of those six pieces or we're not going to be ready for battle. It's important to see that the order in which these items appear here, there's an order. This is the order in which the soldier, the Roman soldier, would have put these things on. And you cannot reverse or mix them up. So what we need to do, what, what do we need to do to, to do this? What, what, what is it that we need to put on? Well, the first one, strap yourself in the truth. First part of verse 14. Strap yourself in the truth. With a belt of truth buckled around your waist. The first item is not so much a part of the armour as it is the foundation. The belt was a necessary beginning for a soldier for for two reasons. Roman soldiers wore skirts similar to to the Scottish kilts, right? That's what they used to wear. Over them, they had a cloak or a tunic which was secured at the waist with a a girdle or, or a belt or a thick belt. It also served as the foundation on which his sword was hung. So you hang the sword from that and uh, perhaps a a knife or something else and the armour was attached to that. When they were about to enter into battle, they would tuck the tunic underneath the girdle, underneath the belt, so as to leave their legs free to free their legs, and, and, and therefore they were, they were going to be unimpeded for the fight. No soldier could go into battle without 
a girdle. Because if he had loose or, you know, flowing robes, he would be an easy victim in any kind of conflict. It will get tangled and so forth. So therefore the expression was to gird the loins. Gird the loins was always a symbol of readiness to fight. I'm ready for battle. That is why this, this item is first. You cannot do battle until you first gird up the loins with the truth. So why is it called the belt of truth? Well, knowing what is true is really important. It helps us to sort out the stresses and pressures in our lives. You, you, you start to put them in an order and say, this is what is really important. Spiritual battle is first and foremost a battle for truth. It was, uh, you might have heard the expression, but it was Senator, the US Senator Johnson who a hundred years ago, he, first was, he was the first one to coin the phrase, the first casualty when war comes is truth. first casualty of war is truth. And remember that Satan's first attack in the Garden of Eden was an attack on truth. The serpent's first strike was against the God, against the veracity of the Word of God. Did God really say? Calling into question God's Word then is... is starts with questioning God's word and then it starts questioning God's character, God's goodness. It follows, right? And then when the devil, the devil tempted Jesus in the wilderness as he was starting his ministry, he, he changed tack, this time by twisting what God had said. It's a bit of a half-truth. It is for this reason that Jesus calls Satan in John chapter 8, he calls him father of lies, the father of lies. In this regard, it helps them when Christians are interested in truth. They are interested in doctrine, what God has left us. We need to be, the word truth or teaching is, is what is discussed in, in Christian doctrine because the, the enemy fights so fiercely to destroy the veracity and historicity of the teachings and events of scripture. All those doctrines and things that have been handed down to us over hundreds and thousands of years, they are important. He wants us to think that it doesn't really matter what you believe theologically or even historically. It doesn't have to be it didn't have to happen. Let's just treat it as, a, as a, something symbolic. But it does matter. You're here. Duncan's sitting right at the front here. He's not a symbol. He's an actual person. He's real. You are, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's something physical, something material like all of us. And once we are called home to glory, we were part of history. 
we're alive. Then we're gone. You can't just simply erase and say, well, Duncan never existed. That's, but that's exactly what a lot of this, the stuff that is happening right now is, is going on, right? I say, what? You're denying history. You're changing it. That's not what he was like at all. Therefore, the attack on truth, and we're seeing it everywhere, right? We're seeing it. There's a historical revisionism on, on so many things. Of course it's true. The historical events of Jesus' life and the early church. Of course it's true what is written in these words in Scripture. Of course it matters. Because it demonstrates who Jesus was, who Jesus is and who Jesus will be. For us to be armed with the truth means that we know the Word of God. We know the Word of God, just not just jumping from page to page or from here to there and everywhere, but we know the Word of God systematically. Organised, in other words. This is what he said about this, this is what he said about that. And we take an interest in that because that, that's how we, we respond to the attacks of the enemy. Because as we saw last week, the enemy is not haphazard, he's very well organised. A man came, I like this story, I've told it before, but I think it's a good time to bring it again. A man came to his old friend, a music teacher, and said to him in in sort of a, a flippant or even sarcastic way, and uh, said, uh, you know, what's the good news today? And the old man never said a word. He walked across the room, picked up a hammer and, and, and struck a tuning fork. As the note sounded out through the room, he said, that's A. It is A today. It was A 5,000 years ago. And it will be A 10,000 years from now. The soprano upstairs is off key. The tenor across the hall flats his high notes. And the piano downstairs is out of tune. He struck the note again and said, That is A, my friend. And that is the good news for today. we don't know what A is, if we don't know what the truth is, how will you defend yourself against all the rubbish that is going on around us? If you start to question what is a male and what is a female, what a baloney. You know, there's something wrong with us. So-called civilised and moronically stupid at the same time. And yet, A is Jesus for us. Unchanging truth. The true north. The unchanging true key. He is the same yesterday, today and forever. 
That is how you know you have the truth. And everything else is measured around that. Is it on key or is it off key? And on him we measure our lives. Now, the next item, having dealt with the truth, we need to be protected by righteousness, which is verse 14, the last part of verse 14, with the breastplate of righteousness in place. A crucial protective armour was provided by the breastplate. It was also called the thoraca because it protected the thorax, the vital organs between the the neck and and the waist. What does it mean to have the breastplate of righteous standing before God, our acceptance before him? If you have that on you, then you can, you can rest assured, you can have a secure heart. Your emotions are securely guarded and adequately protected against the attacks from the enemy. It's also important to know that the soldier's breastplate didn't just cover the front of his body, but also sort of wrapped around his back. The lesson here is that we are mostly prepared for the attacks from the enemy that comes from the front. Because we can clearly see them and we're prepared, mostly. But what happens when the attack comes from the blind side or from the back? Many times the ones who attack, who attack us from the back are the people you least expect it from. Your friends or even your family. In the end, it doesn't matter whether it's the front or back, whether it's full frontal fire or friendly fire, that can be just as deadly, that can be both just as dangerous. As we said last week, Satan is the, his his name is the accuser, that's what Satan means, he is the constant accuser of the believer. His most frequent attack is by targeting our assurance of salvation, a righteous standing before God. He's on a mission to, to oppose and destroy all the good that God intends for you and me. For you see, the believer, through one circumstance or another, often feels a lack of assurance. There is this constant sense of guilt conscience always stabbing us, making us unhappy and miserable. Oh, you messed up again. Why are you feeling like this? Why are you so downcast? Are you really a Christian? Are you sure you're going to heaven? It's a miserable way to live, you know, like the flowers, right? He loves me, he loves me not. He loves me, he loves me not, you know? Is that really what our Christian life is like? You know, the, the feeling that God blames us for every little wrong thing or everything that's wrong in our lives. If things go bad, oh, God must be punishing me. Having said that, we must also recognise that we make it easier for the devil's attacks by the way that we live our lives. 
in other words, the, our, our righteousness in Christ, it's called a positional righteousness, needs to be followed on with practical righteousness. What does that involve? It involves obedience. Stay on course, stay on track. Don't follow the wide path of the world, follow the narrow road that God has called us on. Otherwise we're just encouraging Satan to keep us attacking us. How do you answer attacks like this? Well, many people try and deal with Satan's attacks by hiding behind a breastplate of their own righteousness. It's the thinking that says, I'm a good person, I do good things, I never killed anyone, I'm respected by most people, don't you know, I'm a pastor. I don't deserve to go to hell. I'm actually good enough for heaven. Thinking like this is like being protected from the arrows of the enemy with a breastplate of fairy floss. Right? About the same. And you hear it. You hear it from people. Yeah. Uncle Bob was good. He's in heaven. Never went to church. Never believed in God. But he was good. You know? No. The covering must be given to us. It's not something that we came up with. We didn't put it together in our workshop. It was given to us. This covering, this clothing serves a dual purpose. One is protection against the enemy and also our standing before God. Two things. One is protection The other one is we're looking righteous before the Father, before God. These are the words that we read in Isaiah, Isaiah 61.10. I delight greatly in the Lord, my soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Similar words are found in the prophet Zechariah. In the prophet Zechariah, God shows him a vision in which uh, the high priest Joshua came before God wearing smelly, filthy clothes. And in the dream, in the vision, Satan sneered and pointed saying, you know, he's disqualified, it's game over. But God stood up for his servant, God rebuked Satan and told his angel to remove Joshua's grubby garments. And then he turned to Joshua and he said in Zechariah 3-4, See, I have taken away your sin and I will put fine garments on you. Brilliant, isn't it? Only God can do that. We can't do it. We can't wash ourselves. All of us, no exception, came into this world wearing the dirt and the stench of Adam's sin. All of us. We didn't help the appearance by putting on our own layers of sin and dirt on top of that. 
You know, I'm bad. I might as well get better. If we stay in our filthy clothes, it's, it's game over. But if we turn to Jesus, he'll not only dress us from head to toe with himself and his righteousness, but also provide the protection, the breastplate, to withstand the attacks of the enemy who questions us all the time with lies. Again, let me emphasise that. We do not stand on our own merits. We never had anything worthwhile in ourselves to offer God. We gave all that up filthy garments when we came to Christ. And, and if you're here and you've never done that, that's what you've got to do to fix your standing before God. Not just this present life, but eternity as well. The offer is there. What are you waiting for? And we came on the ground of his imputed. So his righteousness he gave to us. He gave to us his perfect Life, his perfect righteousness. So when God looks at us, he doesn't look at the filthiness, he looks at the righteousness of his son, which Jesus gave to us. From beginning to end, salvation is of God. Right? We got that? From beginning to end, it's all his. This is why the Apostle Paul begins the eighth chapter great, probably the greatest chapter in the New Testament, Romans 8 begins like this Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus Satan condemns us the world condemns us we condemn ourselves but in Christ Jesus there is no condemnation for those who are in him because through Christ the law of the spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. Do you hear those words? No condemnation. So you are believing a lie when you believe that God is angry with you and that he rejects you. If you're going to be condemned, you might as well just keep going. No! In Christ, you are free. Yes, we will be going through many trials and tribulations, but we are not alone. We're not exposed. We are protected. And he deals with us in love and patience and when he does discipline us, he'll discipline us as a father, not as a judge. Because if you're not in Christ, you will have to face a judge and you will have to face condemnation. So what do you prefer, a father or a judge? It makes all the difference in this world and into eternity. The Father who loves us. So, my brothers and sisters, onward, onward Christian soldiers. Let us sing. Thank you.